Welcome to Who Cares, the podcast about the future of home care, presented by Honor. I'm Cameron Tuttle, and I'm joined by my co-host, Randy Allen. Hello, hello. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks for caring. Today, our guest is Deborah Kahn. Deborah is a journalist by trade who has worked most recently at the Wall Street Journal as an executive producer. Deborah is the founder of Being Patient, a news and community platform focused on Alzheimer's and brain health. Welcome, Deborah. Thanks for joining us in the studio today. Thanks so much for having me. Great. All right, let's get into our first question. This is a question we like to ask all of our guests Who do you care for in your current role and why? So currently, I'm a long-distance caregiver to my mom who has Alzheimer's disease. Unfortunately, there's an ocean between us, but whenever you're touched by Alzheimer's, you realize how many people from the family are impacted directly and how much you are really invested in the care of the person suffering from dementia. That's so true, near or far, yeah. So tell us a little bit about your background and what prompted you to start being patient? So I was executive producer at the Wall Street Journal. I was responsible for building out the video operation in Asia. It was a great job. I loved it. I love to build things. I've always been quite entrepreneurial um, in the context of a big company, though. And while I was at the Journal, I received news that my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So not knowing a lot about Alzheimer's, I did what most people do, which is to turn to Google. And that dredged up a lot of different stories, a lot of contradicting information. You know, it really set me on this journey to discover where the truth is, how far are we from a cure, what did this mean for my family? And I started at that point looking for better information. Really, what I did was I started to call researchers around the world and ask them to explain to me after I had read a research report what this meant. And I found a lot of information that wasn't in one place. um, And it actually made me feel, in a weird way, better. Hmm. So as a daughter, you took a real journalist's approach to digging into this topic and trying to find good information. Absolutely. I wanted to find a place that had the latest research. I wanted to know what scientists were looking for when um, they're looking for a cure. I wanted to know what we know about the disease today and what information needed to be found. Where are the blanks, the missing information? So I really approached it that way. And the more people I spoke to, the more scientists I spoke to, the more I realized how much information really wasn't out there and it wasn't in one place. And speaking of research, it sounds like you did a fair amount of research yourself before you actually started creating content on being patient? Absolutely. I never intended to quit my job. I loved <laughs> my job. Um, but, you know, as I said, I'm, I've always been very entrepreneurial in nature. And I was very drawn by this problem, which is you can face a longer term health condition or illness. And people are really at the mercy of Google to understand what the latest is. And I thought, well, why isn't there a an editorially independent site out there that stays with the story, that's giving people up-to-date information about the latest research. And then 
it set me on this journey. I decided, you know, some people thought it was a little rash, but I, I resigned from my job thinking, I wonder if I can disrupt the way that people are getting information. And the first thing I did, which was really nothing, I didn't launch the site, but I did eight months of research. I talked to anyone who would talk to me from caregivers to earlier stage patients to primary care physicians to researchers. And I really came to understand quickly that it wasn't only an information problem, but rather a connectivity problem that really was at the heart of people's angst. A lot of patients and caregivers stuck together because they didn't feel like they had access to the professional community um, to get the answers. They felt very disconnected from their PCPs. Interestingly enough, out of all of the caregivers or patients we spoke to, most of them were really upset with their primary care doctors, not because their primary care doctors are bad people, but more so because they weren't getting the type of information they needed in order to cope. I mean, an Alzheimer's diagnosis is huge. It, it really is like, you know, a tsunami that just devastates your yeah, family. Yeah. And, you know, basically people are usually given a prescription of Aricep and said, I'm so sorry, there's not a whole lot you can do. But your life from that moment on has changed for the longer term. And, you know, for me, I felt like to give people access to one another to get the answers and also to stay on top of the topic. If we were successful with Alzheimer's, there was nothing that was going to prevent us from replicating this model around other longer-term illnesses. What's so interesting to me, not only is the quality of the content on being patient so much better than what you typically find out there, I'm sure because it's created by professional journalists, um, but it also is, is a real community that connects other people, other families who are dealing with Alzheimer's and other types of dementia and, and brain diseases or brain injuries. But then it also seems to be connecting people in the research community. So what we set out to do was really to be a platform where all parties could connect. And sharing information, to me, is moving the needle towards finding a cure. So what we found, interestingly enough, is researchers were actually listening in on our interviews because they wanted to know what other research they should be aware of. So we're seeing great things happen just by getting people, inviting people to the same party on the same platform. That's great. When did you actually launch Being Patient? We launched in August um, at the Alzheimer's Association Conference in 2017. You know, for me, I felt like I've always gone, as many journalists do, by instinct. And mm -hmm. to me, I really felt like something like this was badly needed. And I've never spent a dime on advertising any of our content because I believed I needed to be educated on how people were interacting with our content, whether or not it was necessary. I mean, today in media, it's easy to buy an audience um, right. through um, advertising on places like Facebook and social media. You can see your traffic go way up. But how real is that audience? You know, I was adamant that we don't put a dime into bo boosting anything we do because we need to know where the sweet spots are with information. We spend a lot of time delving into what people are looking for, where the conversations exist, what people are asking about. And I was blown away at how quickly we were able to grow audience and unique views. Well, you're covering a topic that is 
top of mind for a growing group of people. As we know, as the population is aging, more people are continuing to live longer lives. With that comes many diagnoses like Alzheimer's and other types of dementia. So there's a, there's a captive and growing audience of people looking for quality information out there. I'm always looking for great resources on not just Alzheimer's and dementia, but current information, new information, news on the type of research that, that's out there. And I think that that's one of the things that is so valuable to me about this website is it's just a, it's a great resource. So, I mean, anybody out there who is looking to educate himself or herself or your team, beingpatient.com, uh, a great resource. And things are changing quickly. I mean, what do you see happening that's changing quickly from so, your perspective, Deborah? Let me just say one thing to the beginning part of your comment. After we launched, there is probably not a day that goes by where I get an email from someone who knows me or a friend referring um, another friend to me because they've just gotten a diagnosis yeah. or they're beginning to worry about their mom or their dad and or a, a loved one. And for my own personal world, I have come to realize just how big this problem is. I mean, you can read the statistics and we know, you know, by 2030, there may be as many as 130, 150 million people around the world. We know that through the aging demographics. But when you feel it within your own personal realm, how many people call me and say, I'm worried about my mom. When should I worry? What should I do? You understand just really what a tsunami is coming towards us. They call it the silver tsunami. And um, I really feel there's there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. And I mean, there's some great information out there on most of the disease foundation sites, but they may not be as good as staying up on the, the current news. How do you decide what to cover in your content? So what we do is there's daily research coming out around the brain in relation to dementias or brain health. And so we go through the research reports every day. And as any editorial operation would, um, we decide what to cover. Now, you know, they, they have to be peer reviewed. We have a scientific advisory board who, when we have questions about the research, we can go to and have them give us an input on, you know, how trustworthy and whether or not we should be reporting. I mean, because there's a lot of information out there that um, is based on feelings or beliefs mm -hmm. rather than evidence. Right. And our editorial line is really we stick to the scientific evidence. But you asked me a little while ago about, you know, what has surprised me about the news. And when I began this journey, I didn't understand that, you know, just recently, within the last five years or so, there was a huge braining scan study led by a doctor named Dr. Michael Weiner, a veteran uh, UCSF um, here in San Francisco. And what he discovered was that the beta amyloid plaque, which is presumed to be the first hallmark of um, Alzheimer's disease, the plaques in our brain, actually appear as, as much as 20 years before you'll ever see a symptom. So what this did was it shifted a lot of the focus on is there ways to prevent Alzheimer's? Can we kick the can down the road? 
And we know that now. We certainly can kick the can down the road. Is there a cure? No, there's not a cure. But a lot of um, the scientific community now truly believes that there are things we can do that are scientifically proven to make our brain healthier. So, you know, brain health is something that is always said you need to think about it before there's a problem because once there's a problem, you can't reverse it. But we know we can kick the can down the road by as much as a decade, okay? So would you rather have Alzheimer's at 60 or 70, 70 or 80? That's a huge, huge difference. Huge quality of life difference. Absolutely. So we know about things like exercise and sleep, I think, is one of the more recent discoveries that having a good, you know, seven, eight hours of sleep every night helps the brain flush out the amyloid plaques. What are some of the other lifestyle things that are emerging now as possible ways to prevent Alzheimer's and other types of dementia? We just came up with this. Um, I felt the need to write these eight steps well, to better I brain health. I saw that in my news feed today, as a matter of fact. Yeah. yeah. And the reason why is because I felt like, you know, everyone knows about exercise and sleep, and those are absolutely true. I mean, if you're going to do one thing today, it's probably exercise because we know that exercise actually builds brain cells in the hippocampus, the area of the brain responsible for memory. If you're doing aerobic exercise, we actually gain brain cells in that area. But I also felt like there was other information out there that people should know and consider. You know, for example, the brain acts much like, it's an organ that acts like a muscle. We know there are things we can do to make it stronger. The first thing people should do is get a baseline cognitive assessment because everyone has different memories. You know, my sister and I, were from the same genetics, but we have different capabilities in terms of memory. So you need to know what you're starting with when you're healthy in order to make a comparison of when you think things may be going wrong. And that helps a lot with diagnosis. So getting that cognitive assessment while you still are in good health is key and critical to uh, determining whether you're just going through normal aging or if there's really a problem. The other thing is there's a lot more research around things like meditation. Um, Dr. Sarah Lazard of Harvard University is doing some of the best research on how meditation changes our brains. She's found there's been, you know, research where, you know, not only like regular meditation is actually adding a mass to our hippocampus, much like exercise. Mm-hmm. I mean, so if you don't like to get out there and go running, then right. meditate. Because um, it's certainly yes. doing... It's perfect for the non-athlete, sitting. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And then there's this area in um, the brain called pons, which is where neurotransmission um, starts. And they found a direct connection between the health of the pons region uh, to meditation. So the benefits of meditation are increasingly being discovered today based on research. Now, Dr. Lazar is doing some great research now on if it's possible to reverse early-stage memory loss, so a mild cognitive impairment or early-stage dementia through meditation. And that's kind of the next phase of her research. Cool. Very interesting. I I should add, too, you know, things like vitamin levels, um, D and B and the Bs are big ones to brain health. So 
We have vitamin D receptors throughout our brains, and maintaining that level just makes that functionality so much better within our brains. Dr. David Llewellyn out of the UK has done extensive research on vitamin D and its relationship with the brain. So, you know, I'm, I've found out I'm chronically low in vitamin D. It's really easy for me to just supplement it, right? Yeah. Why not? Why yeah. not do that if you know it's benefiting your brain, among other things, just do it. You know, it's not, it's a good way to impact brain health in in a positive way. Stick around. We've got more great stuff after the break. Are you a home care agency owner looking for new ways to grow your business? Well, we've got one. The Honor Care Network is a whole new partnership model that helps local agencies deliver even more reliable care to more families. To learn more about how you can grow with Honor, visit honorcarenetwork.com or give us a call at 855-629-3763. The Honor Care Network, providing better care together. Okay, so Deborah, you had mentioned an interview that you did with Tipa Snow. And I think one of the things that you found most interesting and helpful was that she explained what was going on in the brain that affected behavior that often can be confusing to family members and caregivers. Can you elaborate on yeah. that? And you told me a really interesting example, I think, with your yeah. own mom. So Tipa is one of the people out there who has a rare understanding of the biological changes that are occurring in the brain in a disease state, having dementia, and how that directly impacts behavior. So I asked Tipa, one of the things after my mom was diagnosed, uh, she's probably had Alzheimer's for five or six years now, and I'm finding it increasingly difficult to be in the same car driving with her. So when I'm driving, she's a basket case and like, you know, gasping all the time and telling me to slow down when I'm going 20 miles an hour and, you know, all of these things. And I said to Tipa, like, well, you know, Tipa, I find it really hard to be in the car with my mom. I, I snap at her. I'm saying, stop, you're being ridiculous. And, you know, can you tell me what's going on in her brain? And Tipa explained it to me like she said, basically put some blinders, you know, hold your hands up to your eyes and cover your peripheral vision. And she said, that's what your mom's vision is right now. Her peripheral vision is diminishing. And and so what happens is when you see things in motion or things coming at you, they're amplified Mm -hmm. because you don't have peripheral vision anymore. Sort of don't see them coming. It's like really fast right in front of you. It's like tunnel vision and it's coming at you. And so it's amplified, right? And as soon as she described it in that way, I could understand. And I will treat her gasps with much more compassion than I had in the past. It was more frustration and fear. You know, I'd be like, mom, you're freaking me out. I'm going to get into an accident if you keep doing this. But now I can understand it. And I've done things like I put her in the back seat because she's much calmer in the back seat than sitting in the front seat and seeing so many things coming at her. So just little adjustments. But for Tipa to explain that to me, it was really helpful for me to deal with the situation in a much more compassionate way. Yeah, well, understanding what's actually going on in the brain, what changes are happening in the brain, and how does that affect behavior, I think can be an invaluable tool for family members or professional caregivers who are supporting someone living with with dementia. 
Yeah, and I think one of the hardest things about dementia is what surprised me the most um, with my own personal experience was it's this disease where some days you're like, oh, they're not doing too badly. They're doing really Mm -hmm. well. And then there's other days that you're like, oh, my God, what's happening? And it's this, you know, just up and down all the time, even from the earlier stage to the middle stage to a later stage, these swings in behavior uh, really catch you off guard because you feel like so at points you feel, oh, there's hope. You know, she seems so much better, better today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh, well, maybe she's not as bad as I thought. And then another day will send all those hopes crashing. Well, then the idea of fluctuating cognition, which is something I didn't know anything about before my relative was diagnosed with Lewy body, it's a really interesting idea. And until you understand how it affects someone, it can be really confusing. I think the best analogy was it's like a lamp with a loose connection. So some days the light can be working just fine. Some days it cannot be working at all. And some days it's it's flickering as if the, the wire connection isn't quite solid. So I think many types of dementia are also like that. And that's what that fluctuating cognition thing is about. And I mean, one of our most viral articles, it was written by a friend of mine, Yashia Cotterman. Her mom also had Alzheimer's, but she was further down the road than I was. And her mom sadly passed away over a year ago now. And after her mom passed away, uh, we had, you know, a really long conversation. And she said to me, I looked long and hard to find out how my mom was going to die. And I couldn't find the information. And so she told me all of this information about what she went through and what she wished she had known. And I said to her, Yaskia, you have to write this because I've looked for that. And I'm at a much earlier stage. You've looked for that. And when you were before you were facing the end, that means probably everyone in between is looking for that information. So she wrote this article. Within the article, she describes within the final stage of her mom. Her mom, um, they had an assistant living community, and she's Dutch, so in Holland. And they all went back. They were living in different parts of the world, and the whole family um, was by the mom's side believing that this was the last stage. Her mom was a concert pianist and um, suddenly stopped playing because, you know, you know music, you can play for a very long time. So they took this as one of the first signs that this is probably the end. And, you know, as they're sitting there around the mom's bed, she describes a time where her mom kind of comes through. She starts to eat again. She could tell that the sparkle came back in her eyes. She could tell that she's knowing who who's around her. And then they thought, that's odd. You know, well, maybe this isn't the end. Maybe this is just yet another fluctuating, you know, time from going from bad to good. In fact, her mom died several days later. But The fact that at the end stage of this disease, that she's experiencing something that people are in the middle and at the beginning stages, to me, made me think, I bet by the time hospice arrives, no doctor is paying attention anymore. The patient has already really been written off to this is the final stage. So that's when hospice kicks in. Mm -hmm. However, The fact that she was having this experience where her mom kind of came to for a little bit in the final week of her life made me think, is there something that we should know about this? I mean, should this type of information be considered by researchers because of how complex the brain is and actually how little we know about it? Such a a rich topic, so many things to be exploring. 
Deborah, you, you use a lot of video on your site. Talk to us a little bit about how you use video and why it's so important on your site. When we interview someone, we invite our audience to join in. They can either leave a comment, they can write to us beforehand, or they can participate live. Like during the video. During the oh, video. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was critical to have, to offer to our audience because we want their questions to be answered. Not only questions we have, but questions that they have. Right. So, for example, diagnosis is a huge problem. Most people are given, you know, you have MCI, mild cognitive impairment, and you know, that's really the beginning of their journey, but they don't really know what to do with that. You know, well, um, you know, a lot of doctors don't want to diagnose with Alzheimer's because they think the patient loses hope and, you know, why tell them they have Alzheimer's hold off as long as possible is what we found a lot of doctors felt like. So we realized this diagnosis stage was a real painful point for people. A lot of people don't get a diagnosis for four to five years um, and they see multiple doctors from PCPs to neurologists, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, really trying to analyze themselves what, what's going on. So I am um, one video, and just to demonstrate the strength of these talks, um, we had a gentleman by the name of Mike Belleville on, and he was misdiagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, only to find out several years later that he, in fact, had Lewy body dementia. Now, we asked Mike, now that he knows he has Lewy body dementia, how did he understand it to be different than um, early onset Alzheimer's? And so he went into talking about how hallucinations, it wasn't memory, it was hallucinations mm, yeah. that presented itself. But what was interesting is when we were holding this talk, we were getting a lot of messages, a lot of comments saying, wait, that's exactly what happened to my mother or that's happened to my husband, you know, and... Then it made us realize, hmm, I wonder if Lewy body is one of these dementias that actually is much more widespread than people realize. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we decided, we looked for who are the leading experts on Lewy body dementia. And lo and behold, we connected with a professor out of King's College in the United Kingdom called Das Oxlin. And Dog was able to articulate what is the right way to diagnose Lewy body dementia and what doctors really need to know? So in that small example, I felt like we were providing really important information. We were telling people what to look at if their loved one is experiencing hallucinations in early stage. We were informing primary care doctors of how to diagnose this, you know, because a lot of people don't know. They wouldn't know that. And then on top of it, we asked dog, why is is it so important? Like, you know, if there's no cure for Alzheimer's or Lewy body for that matter, why does it matter? And he said it matters a great deal because in early stage patients, we're seeing a lot of great things with the Parkinsonian medications because Lewy bodies and Parkinson's are more closely related. And so those drug interventions actually help Lewy body patients more so than early stage Alzheimer's. Yeah, so the more accurate the diagnosis early on, the better chance of finding the right medications treatment, yeah. yeah, and treatment. Yeah. Interesting. You've done some other really fascinating video interviews with um, with people living with dementia themselves. Um, you want to talk about 
one of those? Yeah. So we translate the research to the non-scientific community so that they can stay abreast of where the research is heading and they really understand it, right? I mean, it's no surprise that you take a disease like Alzheimer's and over 85% of clinical trials don't get filled with human participants. The reason for that, I argue, I mean, a lot of it is geographical and whether they, you know, meet the requirements. However, we found in our research that most people don't understand, caregivers and and people with dementia don't understand a lot about the research because no one's bothering to explain it to them. So that was one critical area. The next was, as I mentioned before, linking the expert population to the caregivers and patients. The third thing that I felt was crucial is elevating that first-person perspective. What is it like? How can you enlighten us? You tell us. How did these symptoms first appear? You know, and we're learning great stuff. I mean, so one of the things we created was being patient perspectives, and that's the live interviews with people with dementia. For them to to take the time to give us, answer our questions about this disease, you tell us, what is it like? How is it to live with the disease? How did you first discover something was wrong? And that, to me, was critical. That was so interesting because we began to see a pattern in their answers. When you ask a person with dementia how they first noticed something was wrong, they don't usually say it was my memory that was failing. Right. They talk about it in terms of work productivity. So I used to be able to do a lot more, and I noticed my boss you know, called me in and said I was becoming less productive or I couldn't hold my attention for as long as I used to. It's more like an ADD presentation. Mm. And I was like, wow, what's going on here? Why is it that people are describing it this way instead of I couldn't remember anything anymore? Now, interestingly enough, when the patient first sees the doctor, the doctor's talking to them mostly about memory loss. It's not this ADD presentation, right? Mm. So... To me, is that information worth it to put out there so that people can start to understand maybe they should be looking um, at an earlier stage of this? It's the caregiver who usually says it's the memory, but the person with dementia usually says it's concentration. Something else going on here. Well, anybody in this business knows that about, I think it's over 50% of people with dementia are not diagnosed. And in many cases, it's knowing the right questions to ask your doctor to to get that early sort of evaluation. One of the things I learned was that, you know, the sad thing is how society judges a person with dementia. So all of a sudden, you know, they no longer continue in their jobs and they're kind of labeled with this brain disease and they become very isolated, yeah. which is the tragic or thing. Or they're afraid to talk about it with or people. They, they conceal it. They're afraid to talk about it. And what I found was I became so enlightened because I was interviewing these people who are so smart and so intellectual and so capable, still so capable, but they have this, they're wearing this label. And so we went actually one step further. And, you know, a lot of these people, like I I interviewed a woman, she led an entire international sales force for Intel, had a global job, you know, lots of people under her, super smart. I've I've interviewed a mathematician um, who's an academic. I've interviewed journalists like myself who were diagnosed in their early 50s. So one of the things that I realized very quickly 
is there's these populations of people who become advocates because they're kind of like not in their roles anymore. They're not doing their jobs, but their brains are still super smart and super capable. Yeah. So we decided um, to take it really one step further. And, you know, Phil Guttis is a wonderful man. He was a reporter for the right. New York Times. Yeah, I saw that video. Yeah. yeah, and someone who I interviewed. And, you know, it dawned on me one day. I said, hey, Phil, you know, do you want to report for us? Because, you know, you're still super smart and capable. Um, so why don't you report for us? So Phil writes us, you know, one to two articles a week. But beyond wow. that— the value that he's giving us because he – I said, Phil, you need to attend our editorial meetings every week. We have a weekly editorial meeting. And I said, you need to be there because you're going to force us to think about things in a way that we wouldn't because we don't have dementia. You do. So one example of this is, you know, there's a lot of research now being done on early diagnosis, whether it's a blood test. How can we determine if people are in an early stage or pre-symptomatic and on the road to Alzheimer's disease? Because you can understand why researchers want to know that. That's critical to early intervention and helps move the needle on finding a cure. But in Phil's point, when we were talking about the latest story on a blood test, he said, you know what, Deborah, I was diagnosed in my early 50s. Can you imagine if I found out in my 20s that I was on the road to dementia, how devastating that would have been and how that would have changed my life in a way that maybe I wouldn't have wanted it to be changed? And so it's that sensitivity and that value that we're gaining by saying, okay, tell us, take some time to tell us, what is this like? What should we know? You know, and another example of this is a wonderful gentleman named Jeff Borgoff. Jeff, he's one of the first people with dementia I interviewed on, on Being Patient Perspectives. And Jeff is a super smart guy. He's a computer programmer, also has a background in marketing. Uh, in his jobs, he's been able to both do programming and also um, sales and marketing. Jeff and I will often have these conversations about what we need to do to being patient, to like let people know what we're doing and hit bigger populations of people um, so that we, they know the value that we're bringing in this space. Jeff is just somebody who now I consult on a regular basis. So what we did is through Phil and Jeff, we realized this value was great. And we are currently assembling a being patient advisory group so that they can help us as we move forward, as we grow, as we get better, to help us weigh in on critical decisions, just like the experts do. So we have our scientific advisory board. We're going to have our patient advisory. I mean, committee. they are the experts. Let's Absolutely. let's be honest. Absolutely. I mean, I love that you're that you're actually employing and working with people who are living with some form of dementia. It's a perfect example of how. Even when somebody has a diagnosis, they're still very capable um, and, and able to do certain things. They may need some help. They, maybe they can no longer drive, but they are still capable of doing many things that, depending upon what part of their brain has been affected by the disease. I mean, Jeff, one time we were on a call together and Jeff held up this little device. He said, look, and I said, what is that? He said, I'm building a mini computer. And this is a man <laughs> who's been diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and he's still building computers. Wow, so impressive. the capability, I mean, and I, I feel like they can also really help 
move the needle on this and make people understand a dementia diagnosis doesn't mean it's the end of your life. There is still a lot of years to be living. And, you know, we did this through a wonderful gentleman out of the UK. We made a documentary on him because he just is so inspiring. He bikes. He's been an avid biker. And during the interview, he said to me, you know, Deborah, when I get on my bike, I leave Alzheimer's behind. And I thought that was so powerful that he had control over this disease. So we felt the need to really make a a documentary. That was our first being patient documentary about him and his journey with this disease and how he is really taking control. I think that's key and crucial to looking at the patient's perspective. With the diagnosis, you still have control. Yeah, that's great. So talk a little bit about the audience. Who is showing up on your site and in your community? What types of people are attracted to being patient? So not surprisingly, the majority are caregivers like myself, but it's a mix. It's interesting. It's a mix of people who have personally been impacted by Alzheimer's. And it's also a mix of people who are professional caregivers. Um, We have a lot of professional caregivers on our site as well. And then we have people with diagnosis and also researchers. So, But the majority, I would say about 70% are caregivers meaning family caregivers, family and also professionals. Yeah. Yeah. And so that means people working maybe in assisted living facilities. Absolutely. Anywhere along the care continuum. Yeah. Home care agencies. Okay, great. Who do you look for for good information? Do you see other resources out there or other news sites that are doing a good job? Frankly speaking, no. And that's why we created Being Patient. And I don't mean to say that people aren't well intended. There are a lot of great intentions out there. The Alzheimer's Association has great information out there for caregiving and receiving a diagnosis. But no one was staying abreast of what's going on today. And for us, I felt like people needed a resource to really stay on top of the information. We're never going to take the contradictions out of research. There's contradictions that exist in research full stop, and that's not going to change. But what we can do is we can offer the landscape for people to be better informed. So if there is a study on brain health, then what we can say is we've covered you know, these type of studies, they differ or they're similar in this sense. Again, I think what's so unique about the site is the fact that you're focused on the research and what's new and newsworthy. You're not trying to cover a wide, wide, wide range of information. Again, a great resource for anybody who um, is in the business of supporting people or loving people who are dealing with dementia or Alzheimer's. Deborah, what's next for you and being patient? So for me, I think we've had a great two years. It's been a running start. We've seen our audience grow vastly. And again, without any advertising dollars. And to me, that tells me I'm on to something. So our vision really is to create another resource for people. I'm currently working on with my advisors a way to link people to services they're looking for. We've spent so long analyzing the angst of this disease that we see ourselves as a natural extension to get people better resources um, to cope with this disease. We're kind of hammering out what that looks like right now. But, you know, as I said, my ambition really is 
not to stop at Alzheimer's. There's so many long-term conditions out there, um, diabetes, depression. And interestingly enough, you can draw a Venn diagram around a lot of these diseases. If you have type 2 diabetes, you have more than tripled your risk for dementia. So the interrelation between your vascular system, your heart, your sugar levels are great when it comes to brain health. And so my dream is really to create a vertical model where people are getting better information according to different diseases. Great, great. One final question. As you look to the future, what are you most excited about? I think I am most excited about the ability through information to help people cope with this the disease and caring for their loved ones. I mean, you know, I've seen it within my own family. Caregiving is hard. It's hard beyond belief. And it doesn't matter how patient a person is, how kind a person is. It's a very hard thing to do. So for me, giving people better information means giving them better tools to cope. And, you know, if I could leave this planet doing one thing, it's using my journey journalism skills to really move the needle and help people in this space. Thank you so much. So again, for our listeners, if you're looking for a terrific resource on Alzheimer's research or other things related to brain health, I urge you to check out beingpatient.com. That URL will also be in our show notes if you're interested in tracking it down. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a really, really interesting interview. Thank you so much, Cameron. I so appreciate the coverage and letting more people know about being patient. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening, and thanks for caring. Check back soon to catch our new episodes, or better yet, subscribe to the Who Cares podcast on iTunes. And speaking of iTunes, if you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, we'd love if you rated and reviewed us on iTunes. Your rating helps other podcast listeners who care about the future of home care find us and get in on the conversation. This episode was edited by Max Savage of Noisy Savage, and recorded by Veronica Simonetti at the Women's Audio Mission, a Bay Area-based nonprofit organization dedicated to the training and advancement of women and girls in audio. 